Over the last two years, you've probably heard people saying, I've done my research. But in reality, research is a lot more than a few Google searches. And the problem is, when you picture a researcher, you probably think of somebody wearing a lab coat and trying to take over the world. I'm Anna. And I'm Beck. We're two researchers wanting to break down these stereotypes in a fun way. Welcome to We've Done the Research podcast, where we chat to researchers about who they are, the amazing work they're doing, and why it's so important. Welcome to We've Done the Research today, and we have Manuel on the podcast, who is a third-year PhD candidate in the School of Life and Environmental Sciences at the University of Sydney, and he's doing some really interesting research into hoverflies, and today we're here to learn a little bit more about how he does his research, and why this research is so important. So, Manuel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Rebecca, Anna. Thanks for having me here. Um, It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to be talking about my research with you. We are so excited to hear a little bit more about this. But before we jump into hoverflies specifically, I want to know to start off with, did you always want to be a researcher? Because I guess it's not something that you sort of hear about in school as a typical profession. Well, um, I'm going to be honest. I wanted to be a teacher when I was a kid. While I was growing up, while I was doing my uni, I realized that in order to become a university teacher, you have to be a researcher in many many universities. And I thought, oh, well, yes, that's what's showing me the way. That's what I need to do to to fulfill my dream. Um, And then when I was, you know, when I started that journey into research, I fell in love with research. I thought, oh, this is really interesting, you know, having to answer questions that haven't been answered before, um, and, you know, providing this service to all, you know, humankind. It's so interesting. It's such a great journey. And was there like a specific topic or something that got you hooked in? Yes, absolutely. Um, plants. So I was the, I was the, I was the weird one. Um, you know, well, I, when I started studying <laughs> biology, um, all my classmates, you know, they wanted to study sharks and lions and tigers. Well, I, I, I did my undergrad in Colombia. So a lot of them wanted to study monkeys. That was the big thing. Um, monkeys are huge in, in, in South America. Um, I mean, huge, not in size, but there's so many species of monkeys <laughs> and the research. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. And, and yeah, so when they asked me, and, and what, what do you want to study? What do you like? Well, I actually like plants. And everyone thought, oh, plants are so boring. They're so uninteresting. <laughs> They're always stuck in the same place, you know. I thought, oh, you're so wrong. Plants are the most, that's what makes them the most interesting. You know, they thrive without moving. So yeah, I fell in love with plants very early in my career and kind of been following that path since, since then. Okay. So as the, as the plants is how you got into your hoverfly research. Is that right? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. So what was your, like moving from your plant research to the big problem in hoverflies? Well, what was that like? That's, that's the beautiful link, right? So um, plants, because they're stuck in the ground, they cannot, you know, just move around trying to find a partner as we animals do, right? That's, that's what we do as, as adults. We basically move around and try to find a partner, you know, and reproduce. <clears throat> so the way in which plants solved that problem was by using us. So plants basically fool us, uh, a lot of animals, so we can transport this, you know, the male sexual bits into the female sexual bits. So we basically... Um, help them have sex, right? Oh, sorry. We're all sex positive here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so that's that's how hoverflies come into play. So my my main interest, as 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 it's very transparent now, is how are plants going to have sex? But in order to understand that, I had to start studying insects, which was again. So remember, I told you I was not interested in animals at all. And when I was in undergrad, yeah. well, when we were studying insects, I was just sitting in you know invertebrate class, and I was thinking, oh, this is so boring. I want to be studying plants. I'm wasting my time here. <laughs> then you know, you know, life has these weird paths that it forces onto you, and I had to learn a lot about insects in order to figure out what I was really interested in, which was um sex in plants. That's so cool. And does it work that this might be a silly question, but you know, flowers obviously are a really pretty thing. Does it work out that the prettier the flower, the more an insect will visit it? 
Yes, absolutely. Well, you know, <laughs> different different insects and, and different, um, actually, you know, there's a lot of animals that pollinate flowers. So we've got bats and we've got birds. Um, insects are a big one, of course. Um, and, and flowers will, you know, some flowers are more generalist. So they will have a, you know, a big display um, available for basically anyone who wants to come. So think about a sunflower, you know, sunflowers attract a whole bunch of insects, anything that can land in there will be able to grab some pollen, some nectar, and we'll do the trick. Some other, some <laughs> other flowers are way more specific. So, you know, uh, Charles Darwin, which well, of course is kind of a, a central piece in, in modern biology, um, was bewildered by the diversity of flowers. And, and he um, had beautiful thoughts about plants that could only be pollinated by certain insects that he had never seen before and nobody had ever seen. And we only discovered those pollinators 50 or 60 or 100 years after Darwin. But these are flowers that have, um, their, their flowers are so modified that only one species of moth, in this case, uh, can pollinate that particular orchid. Uh, so yes, you know, some of them are generalists, some of them, you know, will allow anyone to come and visit and some others have gone through the extreme specialization path where if that particular pollinator is missing, the flower and the plant will go extinct as well. So both strategies are there. Yeah. Wow. Big risk reward, isn't it? Only, only allowing one in. Absolutely. Absolutely. Super, super risky. But again, you know that has driven so much speciation and and most of the of the you know beauty in the world has been fueled by that association between some very particular insects and some very particular plants and so bees you know we always hear about bees we got to save the bees because they're saving all the plants and they're keeping the world going and um creating all the honey and you know pollinating the crops but it sounds like there's lots of different types of pollinators out there so should we be saving more than just the bees are, are bees sort of like the sexy insect that we all we all love to love absolutely well, well it's it's a fantastic question i'm very glad to talk about this um we so bees are very important and you know most of the time when we talk about bees we're actually referring to a single species which is the honeybee there's there's several groups of honeybees. Uh, the commercial ones, the ones we get our honey from, are very important, especially in Europe and in the United States, where a lot of their native pollinators are, are gone from, from a lot of the crops. So they, they need to bring these honeybees in hives in order to pollinate their crops. Otherwise, they wouldn't have a harvest. So that, and that's why they are very important. In Australia, we are you know, lucky enough as to still have a lot of the native pollinators flying around. So there's thousands of species of bees, uh, but of course it's a very important bee commercially because it, it's not only giving us the pollination, it's also giving us the delicious honey and, you know, <laughs> wax and they collect pollen, which we also eat, you know, there's as a supplement and stuff. So they're very, very, very important commercially. Uh, but they are not the only pollinator out there. There's many, and we do have to take care of all of them, yes. Yeah, absolutely. And so I guess you talked about it a little bit in terms of the hoverfly, but especially in Australia, why are hoverflies so important? Yeah, that's, that's a fantastic question. I'm very glad to, 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 to tell you this. So um, I guess because a lot of the science... Uh, um, was developed in countries uh, where, where the winter was very harsh. It, it's kind of a, the, the usual thing is to only survey the insects during the warmer months of the year. You know, insects um, are different to us. We can regulate our own temperature, but insects are basically bound by the environmental temperature. So if it's too cold, those insects will not be able to fly. They'll, they'll go into a deep sleep sort of state. So they'll just mm. stay there. And if it gets Sounds extra like cold, me in the winter. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's a little bit like pods. But, we, you know, we, we're still useful 
to some extent. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, and yeah, and if it gets extremely cold, they'll die, right? But, and, and, and kind of we followed suit and we stopped investigating what was going on in winter. But as you know, our winters are very different to a winter in the UK or, you know, in Germany where insects won't be able to survive. Mm. And so when I, when I started uh, my PhD, we did a little bit of, you know, the usual thing in which we would sample spring and summer, maybe a little bit of autumn, but we would never sample in, in, in winter. But we started thinking, hey, you know, you go and you have a walk during winter and there's a lot of wattles and, and eucalyptus trees that are flowering. You think, who's pollinating these things? You know, these are native plants and it's middle of the winter. There's got to be someone carrying the pollen from the female flower, from the male flowers to the female flowers. Mm. And we started seeing a lot of hoverflies and we thought, all right, so there's a connection here, right? So these guys must be really important for, for, for the reproduction of these plants that flower during winter. And there's heaps of native plants that flower during winter. And, and that's make, that makes hoverflies in Australia really important, very important pollinators, because they're the only ones that are occupying that very particular uh, niche, that time of the year where all the other insects are kind of, you know, in the winter mode, hoverflies are very happy. They want to do all the job that has not been done by all the other insects. So were you the, or you, or your lab, your research lab, were you the ones to find this out? Were you the ones to discover that they're pollinating in winter and this specific hoverfly is the one doing it? Yes. Well, it's a, that's huge. Well, you know, yeah, all, all, all <laughs> research, um, is conducted by growing by little bits. And um, yeah. uh, so there had been some studies in the past suggesting that mm -hmm. hoverflies had the ability to pollinate certain flowers in certain regions um, at certain times of the year. But there had, we, well, at least we don't know of a study that had actually surveyed hoverflies during a whole year and, and reflected how different species of hoverflies peaked at different times of the year and showing clearly that most of the abundance and diversity happened during winter. So yes, we, we were the first ones to see that um, and, and to report it in the literature, which is that, that particular piece is under review right now. So it, it should be out for the, for the public very soon. Wow, that's so, so exciting. exciting. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm Googling hoverflies, and they do look a little bit like bees. They're yellow and black. and So how do you tell the difference? All right. Um, that's, <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question, and it's something very interesting. So most group of insects have two pairs of wings. That's the, that's the one thing that... Um, groups insects or amongst one of the things that groups insects but flies all the group of flies have um reduced one of those pairs so two of their wings have been reduced to really tiny structures that help them um maneuver when they fly so that's why they're called flies because they can fly so well so a bee of any sort will always have two pairs of wings, so four wings. A fly, mm. including hoverflies, which are true flies, will only have two wings, right? So ah. the other pair is reduced into very tiny things that you can only see with a microscope or if you have really, really good eyes, which I don't, so you can only see them with a microscope. <laughs> well, um, have to keep an eye out. I had no idea about that, so that's something new I've learned today. That's so yeah. interesting. <laughs> it's great. And so... <laughs> I guess like a another thing that we were really interested in is, um, you know, we both work in digital health, so it's a little bit different, but how do you do this type of research with hoverflies? Um, do you do it in a controlled environment? Do you just do it in nature? Um, yeah. Could you tell us a little bit more about sort of how that works? Yeah, of course. Um, so yeah, most of our, most of our studies here, you know, we, we select a bunch of sites. So we, so, so before that, I want, I want to, um, add something. A another really important part of our research is trying to understand how 
uh, the growth of cities is affecting uh, hoverflies, right? So, uh, you know, cities grow and they take up all that habitat that was previously entirely for the animals and plants that were there. Now they have to share it with us. How is that new interaction affecting them is a really interesting question. We're also trying to do that. So what we do now to answer your question is, you know, we basically agreed over Sydney, let's say, and we divide it into little squares and we give a score to each of those squares. And that score represents the urbanization. And we measure urbanization by, you know, you know, measuring things like the amount of human beings or the, the human population density or the amount of sealed surfaces, you know, paving pavements and concrete and stuff like that. And we come up with scores. And then, you know, we have everything from zero in, you know, the national parks that surround the city to a hundred in the CBD. And then we distribute our sampling sites into those categories, right? So we sample 10 sites that are, you know, really green and nice and lush and 10 sites that are intermediate and, and so on and so forth. And then we actually go, you know, one time in the summer, one time in the winter, one time in the spring, one time in the autumn and, you know, stare at flowers, <clears throat> take a, take a net and capture all the insects that we see flying on top of the flowers and record all those observations. You know, this particular insect captured this time of the day was seen on this particular flower. If we don't know what it is, we have to take a bunch of those flowers and identify them. It's a lot of time out in the field. And then it's a lot of time back in the lab trying to figure out which insect is which, which plant is which, and when does this one flower and when is not flowering. And, you know, it's a lot of, you know, matching uh, pieces of a puzzle. That is so crazy. I never would have thought starting off this interview today that, you know, studying one insect or certain types of insect would then lead to, you know, studying the whole city, you know, what, what does the city have? Is there enough green space and things like that as well? So there's like a whole range to, to the way that you're studying this, isn't it? And so how do you know, based on the few samples that you take that, that the samples are representative of, you know, that whole month or that whole season? Yeah, that's good. Um, so we use, we use a bunch of statistics to, to basically tell us. So, you know, it's, it's like plugging numbers into a formula that somebody, you know, a really smart person in a statistical lab figured out um, how, to, how to easily um, tell you if, you were, if your sampling was big enough. So all that I have to do is to plug in the numbers into a formula and it will give me a graph which is basically, uh, well, it has my sampling effort and which is, you know, the number of insects that I have been getting per hour or the number of species uh, of insects mm. that I have been getting per hour or per day of sampling effort. Um, and, and that is basically a curve, right? So when the curve is really steep, that means that every new hour that I have been sampling, I have been getting a lot of new insects. But as the curve starts to, you know, um, lose its steepness and become and becomes flatter, that means that every new hour that I am investing, I am only getting very little return on my time because I'm not finding any new species. And that's how we do it. Mm. Those are called the species accumulation curves. Um, and, and so we always wow. try to, you know, sample enough as to cover all the steep side of the curve, but we don't want to, you know, spend unnecessary amounts of time, which accounts to taxpayers' money, into sampling more than needed. So that's that's kind of the sweet spot. That's when we need to stop. And is there like a specific time of the day that you have to go and sample? Because like, you know, is it does it have to be in the morning or the afternoon or the middle of the day? Or do you have to be there for, you know, the whole, you know, of daylight of a day? That's that's a great that's a great question. And I've got to be really honest with you. Um Again, we're kind of rewriting our understanding of on insects because we live in such a particularly different place um, uh, to all the other places where this research has been conducted before. So because insects in temperate zones have a very limited time of the year when they can be active and 
also the plants there, you know, winter comes and nothing's flowering during those three months. And then the snow has to melt down and everything's, you know, sprouts, but you've got like basically eight months where things are flowering. So everything kind of compresses into that. And, and, and that has created some particular sampling strategies for those countries. But in Australia, things are very different. So we first thought, oh, well, you know, we need, we need sunny conditions and, and in order for insects to, to become active. But if you do that in summer, it's going to be really extremely hot for a lot of those insects. So they don't want to be that active. So maybe during the warmer months, early hours in the morning or late in the afternoon are better times. And that also responds to the flower and the plant metabolism, right? If you're, if you're producing nectar, which is basically a liquid, in the middle of a really hot day, what's going to happen with that liquid is that it's going to evaporate really quickly, right? So it's going to become, you know, if you, if you let your um, syrup in the, in the stove for a long time, it's going to become thick. So when an insect comes and tries to, to eat that, it's going to be too thick for them. They won't be able to do it. So plants also regulate the time of the day where they're offering pollen or nectar. And, and so we had to figure all that out while we were sampling and realize, all right, so summer has to have some times of the day and winter has to have some times of the day. But in order to do that, we actually had to sample throughout the whole day and see what the differences were. And so you figured that out as well through your PhD research? Yes, yes. And wow. that actually brought us to a really interesting question, um, which was we were seeing different patterns of usage of flowers between male and female hoverflies, especially in one species. And we thought, really? why? Why is this happening? And you now we started reading a bit and, it was people suggesting that, you know, maybe, you know, males, what, what, what would you think male does? This is, this, is, this is my question for you. What, how do you think a male hoverfly will spend most of its time? I'm guessing saving a female. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, 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 that's spot on. So they basically spend most of their time, you know, flying around and spending a lot of energy. And as you know, we, we get our energy from carbohydrates, from sugars. And that started pointing us out that, all right, so maybe, you know, hover, male hoverflies are more driven into flowers that offer nectar. But now another question is, what do you think of females spend all, or, you know, what do you think are the priorities for females? What do they do in their complete life cycle? Anna, you got any guesses? I don't know, trying to, trying to make more hoverflies. Yes, exactly. I don't know. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. So they're really good mothers, right? And, and, they're, and they need also to provide for their young, right? Um, so in order to, to develop all those eggs that are, you know, um, inside their bodies after they mate, they need not only the carbohydrates from the sugars, they also need to go and, and find some protein. And so probably they're looking for the pollen because the pollen is rich in amino acids, in proteins. And that started giving us an idea that, yes, maybe what we were seeing had a biological explanation, right? So males yeah. maybe go more for those, you know, sweet, rich flowers that give them energy in order to, you know, look for females. And um, uh, there's a beautiful yeah. story about males, but I'm going to leave that later. Um, <laughs> and, and females are, you know, looking for those, those plants that will nourish them so they can, you know, develop really healthy eggs and then lay them on plants. I did not expect your research to turn out to be so sexual. You know, the plants are trying to do it. The, the bees, the hoverflies are trying to do it all the time. Absolutely. <laughs> it sounds like everyone's just trying to have fun. Absolutely. That's, that's all. That's all it is. It's all about, you know, having, having sex and being really good at it. Really good at it. That's, yeah. that's what life is about, I guess. That's true. You got to be good at it or your lineage will die out. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> and so um, one thing about lineage 
uh, dying out, I guess. So if you're at a backyard barbecue and there's tons of flies roaming around and then somebody's like, oh, these are so annoying. We need to put out one of those things that catch all the flies and kill them. (laughs) So what do you think about those? Are those bad? Are those flies like very different to the flies that you research? Yeah, well, that's, um, that's a great, that's a great point. And um, (sighs) you make me think a lot about my mother when, when I was, um, (laughs) when I was studying my PhD, I did my masters on, on a lot of other insects, but basically on bees. And because, you know, bees have such a romantic place in our conception of the natural world. My mother kind of loved what I did. She was, oh, she was amazed every time I told her about bees and I sent her pictures of new bees. And she even came with me a couple of times to catch bees. Because native bees are amazing, right? Have you seen a blue banded bee, for example, if you haven't, or a cuckoo bee? If you haven't, please Google them right now. They're stunning. They're spectacular. So, and then I started my PhD in flies and my mom was like, flies? The flies are filthy. Why are you, you know, why are you changing from such a beautiful group of creatures like bees to filthy flies? And I was like, mother, not all flies are filthy. You're, you're probably thinking about the housefly. And, and this, this brings us to a little bit of history in, in Australia. Um, you know, flies in general are very diverse group of organisms, you know. So there's flies that eat corpses, as, as you know, you know, they are decomposers. There's uh, mm. flies that, sorry, <laughs> you, you're, seeing, you're seeing pictures of, um, of, of bees in, at this moment, aren't you? Are you? Yeah, <laughs> how cool is that? Yeah, they're beautiful. Um, it's bright blue. I'm, I did not know that existed. Nature is so cool. Yeah. Nature. <laughs> um, right, so, so, so yeah, flies, you know, they play very different roles. And in Australia, when... Um, you know, Europeans started bringing um, cattle and, and horses and, and sheep. There was this huge um, amount of, of feces that these animals were producing. And, you know, that created a surge in the animals that used that resource. You know, those feces are food for some flies. Um, hoverflies focus entirely on flowers. So if you ever see a hoverfly next to you, there's a 99.9% of chance that it's only checking you out, trying to figure out if you're a flower or not. But it won't, it won't approach that much. It'll just mm-hmm. see you. And once it realizes, no, you, you're not producing any nectar or, flower or, or pollen, it'll just fly off. <laughs> That's so interesting. <laughs> and so, Manuel... All your research is so interesting, but I guess one of the big problems that we have in research is getting money to do our research. How hard is it to get money to do research into hoverflies? Yeah, it's tough. Um, it's tough. Uh, I, I think I've been lucky. I've, um, I'm surrounded by an amazing um, team of researchers. So I've got three supervisors for my PhD, and each one of them is more, more amazing than the previous one. Um, they're really good at, you know, they have been studying, so my main supervisor, Dieter Hockula, has been studying um, urban ecology for, you know, at, at least 25 years. I know he's been at Sydney Uni for 25 years or more, maybe 26. Uh, and he's very experienced. Um, I think uh, understanding how to how to ask the right questions is, is a skill set that you develop with time. And he's very good at it. You know, I was just lucky to fall in a team with more, where my supervisors have been able to guide all my enthusiasm into <laughs> projects that actually have outcomes um, that are perceived as important um, from a government standpoint or from a, you know a university standpoint and they say this project is worthwhile funding you know we we're happy to support this because this knowledge is important for us and yeah so luck for me but for them a lot of experience and you know and good training 
Yeah, absolutely. And what's one of the examples of one of those questions that sort of answered a problem that a lot of people would care about? Because then you could use that in one of your next, um, you know, grant applications that says, you know, we found this big thing that helps lots of people. And now we need more money to keep going down that line. So a great example for that was, um, I, I also did my master's with, with my supervisors and with my actual supervisors. And m the question in my master's was more about urban green spaces. So the attributes that urban green spaces must have. And just wait, I'll stop you. So urban green spaces, what you're meaning is all the parks and the trees and the gardens that are in a city. Absolutely. So including your backyard, the plants that are in your pots, in your balcony, everything green, you know, green roofs, green walls, green structures, everything green in a city. Yeah. My master's degree was all about trying to figure out um, which attributes of those urban green spaces were positive for some insects, for the diversity and abundance of some insects that we consider as good or useful, and which attributes were considered as bad. And, you know, and one of the things we, we were measuring was that um, urbanization gradient. So how, how urbanized was a place, how much um, sealed surfaces, how much population density, human population density, and how was that impacting the populations of, of insects? And what we realized was that, yeah, you know, some groups of insects may be affected by that, but, but all the, all the negative impact that those parts, those attributes may be causing could be reversed or, or, or yeah, reversed by having high abundance and diversity of plants in the green spaces. Because insects usually only care about their very immediate surroundings. So if you're if you're giving them all their need in that urban green space, it doesn't matter that two blocks away you have you know a huge high rise with very high human population density because the insects will have all their need in that urban green space. So we kind of debunked, or not we. This 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 was not only us, but in the last couple of years, scientists, urban scientists, have been realizing that. Cities are not necessarily deserts, you know, they're not necessarily hostile against all life. We just mm. need to figure out better ways of creating those urban green spaces. And that's what we're doing. And by So what we can do maybe is to add a couple um, plants to our balconies or uh, things like that. I see you have a lot of plants in your house, <laughs> in your background. <laughs> so maybe that's something um, the listeners can do to help is, is put out a few more plants and plant some things so the flies can come and pollinate. Absolutely. And not only flies, you'll find that bees will start coming um, as well. And not only the honeybees, you'll have, you know, your opportunity to see the blue banded bee which is amazing, or stingless yeah. bees, which are beautiful, even the cuckoo bees, which are, or, you know, there's so many examples of amazing uh, bees. So yes, you will start attracting um, a, lot of, a lot of insects that are beneficial. You know, they're pollinator plants. Um, some of them will even, you know, if you have aphids, for example, um, you know, um, aphids are these little um, insects that suck on, on your plants and, and they usually transmit diseases and viruses and things so your plants will, will be unhealthy and wilt and and do horrible things no, we don't want them no, yeah, that, so, that, so, that, so we don't want them right and there's a lot of insects for example hoverflies that will come and lay their eggs there where those aphids are and the larvae of these hoverflies will eat the aphids so they're even good you don't have to use you know these um uh, artificial uh, venoms or or herbicides or not sorry not herbicides um, pesticides to control those aphids because you've got some beneficial native insects that are taking care of of those pest problems that you have so again it's it's the it's a vision of a of a bigger picture right of an ecosystem we're, yeah, we're, we're not yeah. living in isolation from nature here nature is we are nature right so the more we interact with nature and the more we understand how nature works, the more we can um, integrate our 
our lives with nature and get the most out of that interaction, right? Rather than isolating Use ourselves. It to our benefit. Yeah. Yeah. That is honestly so interesting. And I guess, you know, as humans, like you, you, we don't want to be disrupting these ecosystems. You know, we want to do what we can to sort of help and enhance them as much as we can. So I guess that kind of leads me on to my next question. Um, where are you at in your research journey and what's next? Oh, I'm at the most, uh, whenever I say this, everyone says, oh, cool, interesting, exciting. And I think, oh, it's not that exciting <laughs> for me. I'm 29 days away from submitting my PhD thesis. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, it is a very, I just submitted back in December. So it is very um, stressful, but an exciting time the last month, that crunch time. Yeah, it is. Um, I'm, I'm very happy. I think, you know, things are going really well. Uh, we've got, got um, a, a lot of work ahead of us. Um, I guess the next steps are um, to trying to work with hoverflies. There was a big, big chapter in my thesis that, um, couldn't complete because of COVID. Um, and, and that is a chapter that has a very special place in my heart because it, it kind of um, summarizes all my research from the last five years and puts it into action in a, in an, in a critically endangered ecosystem that was widespread throughout Sydney. So what we know as Sydney today was mainly an ecosystem we call the Eastern Suburbs Banksia Scrub. That was the dominant ecosystem throughout the Sydney Basin bioregion. But because Sydney developed um, in the last 200 years as a city, a lot of that ecosystem um, was you know, chopped down and it only remains now in you know little pockets in golf courses in the eastern suburbs, so there's a bunch of them um, in Botany Bay. There's a bunch of them uh, well in Randwick, um, in the Centennial Parks, and then there is some remnants in North Head next to Manly. Mm. And that community is rich in plants that flower during winter. And and we thought we we really need. To, we really need to understand who is pollinating these plants because it's, a, it's an endangered ecosystem. It's, that's, those are the only places on earth where that ecosystem still exists, right? Wow. So we wanted to do that and you know, we had all the permits, we had all of our design and COVID struck that was going to happen, that was supposed to happen last winter. Mm -hmm. um, so, well, we're keeping that open and we, we hope, uh, you know, we can we can run that that project in the next couple of years and, and figure out who are pollinate who are the pollinators. We think it's hoverflies, to be honest, um, and which species of hoverflies are there. Maybe we find endangered populations of hoverflies that only exist in that particular ecosystem. So that's a huge project to have us. Um, mm. Yeah, so that's what's coming. That's so exciting. And so looking back, you know, from the, we're now almost at the very end of your PhD journey, looking back from now to the beginning, what are your peak and pit? So what are the best parts and the worst parts of your, or the hardest part of your PhD? Um, hardest part um, was, is probably dealing with all the unexpected stuff. Um, so many things that go wrong, so many things that, you know, we wanted to, for example, study how pesticides and herbicides were affecting hoverflies. And, you know, we collected thousands of samples and we had a very short period of time to, to analyze those samples and the machine at uni broke down and, and you know, there was nothing we could do about it. You know, and they had to ask for, for pieces and, you know, anything. it was a mess. It was nobody's fault. It was just, you know, bad luck. Um, and, you know, I think one of the amazing things about doing a PhD and being surrounded by a great super, uh, super supervisory team is, you know, to be able to get that information of a catastrophe approaching and say, yeah, you know, it's fine. We can deal with this. Why don't we focus on this other problem meanwhile? And we'll see what happens with that. And 
by doing that, we started looking at our problem from a different angle and created amazing, amazing solutions. And yeah, it would have been awesome to see how pesticides affect the community. We can probably do that again in the future. But you know, we created that resilience that is so important, not only for scientists, for everyone. You know? So that, that situation forces you into looking at the problem with new eyes, with a fresh pair of eyes and creating opportunities. I love that your peak turned into, or your pit turned into a peak. Absolutely, absolutely. I love that you use the word resilience as well, because I think it's something as a researcher that you definitely have to be resilient, whether it be in terms of the actual work that you're doing and learning how to, you know, pivot as you go and you know come up with new questions and all of that. Um, but also in terms of, um, you know, scholarship applications, grant applications, you know. You have to be resilient and go, oh, I didn't get that one. That's okay. I'll try again next time. So <laughs> just yeah. a little bit of insight for our listeners into the research world there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and if I can add to that, um, all the <clears throat> publishing, you know, paper publishing process, which can be so disheartening at times for, for um, those who don't know, every time um, that we create a new piece of science, we have to submit it to you know uh, peer-reviewed journals, which basically get that information, that new piece of research, and send it to other scientists that are experts in that field. And that those other scientists, you usually don't know who they are, they read your new piece of research and they decide if it's well constructed. You know, they they basically assess you, um, and and they come back with a review. And sometimes the review is, look, this is not good enough. You have to work harder. You need to do your stats better, or you need to sample more, or you need to spend more time in the lab because this is not telling us what you tell what you think it's telling us. And dealing with that is very complicated because you tend to take things personally. Of course, this is not per- they don't even know who you are, right? They're just reading something you wrote. Um, but yes, resilience is very important here to grab that information and make your work better. Always, you know, grow from. Uh, the criticism you receive all the time from the grant application, from the scholarship application, from, you know, the paper rejections, that's how you grow. You know, you grow from falling down and learning from your own mistakes and making your work better in the future. Absolutely. Yeah, I think um, it's definitely easy to, at the start, sort of take it personally, the comments and everything. So one thing I've tried to do during my research is think about it as, you know, free feedback. So to how to make, I how can I make this better? Because what I thought I was writing or what I thought the meaning of what I wrote was, isn't really getting across to the reader. So they've given me tips on how to make what I want to say end up better on paper, if that makes sense. So so helpful. So we have uh, one last little segment that we call Audience Asks, where some people from Twitter have sent in some questions for you. Um, So our first one is from Dr. Stephanie Partridge, and she wants to know, what's the relationship between your research and human health or the health of our environment? Oh, well, that's great. Um, A lot of well, a lot of the work we do in our lab, not particularly me, but other students that are finishing their PhD, uh, are able to link the benefits uh, in well-being, mental well-being, uh, between you know human beings and the urban green spaces. Uh, so, for example, one one fantastic um, graduate from from our lab a couple of years ago, Lucy Taylor. Uh, showed in her research that the more exposed adults are to you know nature to urban green spaces um well there was a huge array of benefits in their mental health and physical health and there's another uh, phd student that's actually going to finish around the same time i do ryan keith uh he's doing the same kind of study with kids how do kids when they are growing up connect to nature and how are those connections affecting their lives afterwards, you know, in terms of well-being um, and, you know, their, their mental development? So our little piece of research here with the hoverflies and how they um, react to urbanization is very relevant for 
for human well-being. Because if we figure out ways of having you know, better quality urban green spaces that support themselves rather than having human beings always having to kind of help them, if they are sustainable in the long term and provide a lot of existing services to us, then we are going to be better off, right? We are going to be part of that community and we're going to be able to interact with them in a positive way. 100%. That makes total sense. Okay, we have another question from Nasheed Hafiz. She said, um, moving from another country to Australia can be challenging. Did you find it challenging or did you already always have Australia on your mind that you wanted to come here to study this specific thing? Um, It's definitely challenging. I cannot say not, Um, especially because Australia is so far away from everywhere else i i don't think it's only from south america i think australia is just so isolated so you know you, you miss family you miss friends and and um well you, you miss your culture it's it's you know we're part of a bigger thing and and when you remove yourself from that bigger thing you you struggle right but again yeah. it's an opportunity to learn um you know and, and to open your mind to you know a new culture and you know to find new friends and to find new opportunities. So it is, it is challenging. I reckon, you know, my first two years were extremely challenging. I missed home a lot and I tried to go back a lot. You start, you know, um, growing out of that, um, of that fear of the new and you start developing uh, love for Australia. So now it's, I've been here now for, uh, I think this is my 10th year or ninth wow. year in Australia. So now when I go back, last time I went back to, to Colombia, um, I, I felt that a lot of things uh, felt more to me like home in Australia than in Colombia already. Cause you know, I, I arrived here when I was 23. Um, yes. and so I lived all my twenties and early thirties here and yeah so but yeah so no uh, it's going to be challenging but then it becomes it becomes home i guess if you live long enough and it's in its great place to live i wouldn't i wouldn't want to leave anywhere else in the world yeah i can definitely relate i also well i'm from canada so i immigrated and now i just became a citizen last week so congratulations <laughs> definitely here to stay for a while which is great it has been hard during covid so i can definitely understand that um did you move here because of the research or yeah, a little bit. Um, yeah, I did. I did a. Yeah, I came to to study. I I did a, a different, completely unrelated masters. I did a masters on environmental economics when I first arrived here, and that was probably not actually the path that I wanted to follow. But luckily, when I finished that, I I I met my my supervisors, and then I did my second masters with them, and and that's when the real journey with them started. Second master. So you've done two masters and now PhD. Yeah, I think I'm done with studying now. My nephews, you know, I've got little done nephews, now. um, uh, six and nine year old, and and a niece, of course. But she she doesn't participate in this conversation because she's smaller. But my two my two nephews, uh, they ask me, well, but you you're so old. Why do you keep going to uni? Why? <laughs> What's wrong with you? Right. Uh, so I think yeah. Um, I- Sometimes, too. <laughs> all the time. My friends are like, "Why are you still at uni?" <laughs> Manuel, it has been so great chatting with you today. So, thank you so much for sharing with us all your expertise um, in hoverflies and in urban green space and how they interact. I mean, it's just been so interesting to learn. And for our listeners, is there anywhere that they can follow you to um, sort of keep up with your research? So yeah, you can follow me in Twitter. My Twitter handle is M Lequerica. And is there anything else you want to, like any take-home messages you want to tell our audience before we go? Uh, so I guess be open. Be open to, to the wonders of science. It's a beautiful world in there. And I think one thing um, I'll take away from your research is definitely planting some more plants in my yard and i want to see one of these blue bees yes how cool where can i go to look at a blue bee it's the perfect time of the year for the blue banded bees um so try to find you know try to go for a walk 
uh, around around the parks. And one thing that happens a lot is when you're walking, your eye is uh, probably focusing on things that are happening in the distance, right? So you miss a lot of the tiny things that fly around you. So if mm. you see a patch of flowers, just take two minutes and look, stare directly into the patch of flowers so your eye can adapt into that focal distance. And just wait, you know, stay still, wait, and you'll see them. They'll, they're there. That's where they live. That's their habitat. You're walking into their houses. You ignore them wow. because you're too focused looking at the path. But that is where they would be. So, yeah, go for a walk today. It's a beautiful day today. I will. I'm going to surprise myself, I think, with all these blue bees that I've never seen before that have been there the whole time. <laughs> wait, wait, what about the hoverflies? They're also going to be there. Some of them, because it's not yeah. winter, but some of them. You can also surprise. Have you seen a hoverfly fly? Oh, have a look. Have you seen them? I hover? don't know. Well, that's what they're called, hoverflies. You know, they just hover like a, you know, like, like, like a helicopter. Hummingbird of flies. They, they are, they are. <laughs> their flight pattern is so stunning. They'll just hover, and you, you, you'd think they're suspended from a, from a rope or something because they're so static. They're so still where they're flying, yeah. and then they just dart sideways and upways, and it's. Beautiful. So keep an eye on that. Move over to hoverboards. We're going to be looking at hoverflies. <laughs> I think you've got everyone inspired now to go out, go for a walk and try and find a hoverfly. And if you're lucky, one of the blue bees too. <laughs> yes. Well, anything, anything you see will make your, you know, any of those things will make your life a better, a better, a little bit better. So, you know, the more the merrier, but one is enough. Wonderful. And I hope everyone will be just as excited as you. Okay. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> You've definitely gotten us excited. Well, that's great. That's that's part of my job too. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Manuel, thank you so, so much for your time and especially at crunch time uh, with handing in your PhD thesis to join us yeah. to chat about your research. And um, I'm so excited to hear more about it in the future. Well, thanks. Thanks, Rebecca. And thank you, Anna. Thank you very much for having me here. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to We've Done the Research Today. We hope you've learned something new and you went out and saw a blue bee. If you like our content, make sure to subscribe so you can stay tuned each week and follow us on Twitter for other updates at Done the Research.